Well, good evening and welcome to St. Paul's Cathedral as we continue this series, The Mind of the Maker, where we're fortunate enough to engage with some creative men and women and discuss with them their lives, their imagination, and of course their faith. And tonight I'm delighted to be able to welcome Sir Andrew Motion. Andrew will be well known to you, a poet, a biographer, a novelist, a lecturer, the Poet Laureate for 10 years until 2009, and currently Professor of Creative Writing at Royal Holloway in the University of London. Andrew is also a council member of the Advertising Standards Authority, and you may also have seen him in the press fairly recently as he heads up as president of the Campaign to Protect Rural England. He's a man of many passions and of many talents and gifts. And finally, I have to declare an interest tonight because I've known Andrew for nearly 15 years and count him as one of my closest friends. Indeed, I even married him. That is, to his wife, by the way, not to me. We're not allowed to do that yet. (laughs) So I'm not sure whether sitting here with him here like this is harder or easier than if I didn't know him, but we'll see what happens. Just before a prayer and... Bible reading though, Andrew, how does it feel for you at the moment sitting in a big cathedral under the dome? Are you comfortable in churches? I'm very comfortable in churches, though when I think of church, I don't quite think of St. Paul's, which of course is a church, but it's a cathedral, um, and simply in terms of scale and obvious connections with bits of our national past, it is not precisely unique, but nearly unique. And I suppose Westminster Abbey has to be thought about in the same sorts of ways, but it's very unusual to sit in a building as magnificent as this one is, in which the national past is so obvious. So if I said I was comfortable with that, it would sound rather blasé, I think, but I feel it's a treat to sit here. Well, try and feel at home, and uh, likewise, everyone here too. So first we begin this evening with a prayer and then with a scripture reading that Andrew has chosen. Let us pray. God our Father, you never cease the work you have begun and prosper with your blessing all human creativity. Make us wise and faithful stewards of your gifts that we may serve the common good, maintain the fabric of the world and seek that justice where all may share the good things you pour upon us. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to St. John. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, and on this wise showed he himself. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a-fishing. 
They say unto him, We also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. But when the morning was now come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any meat? They answered him, No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. They cast therefore, and now they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he girt his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were two hundred cubits, dragging the net with fishes. As soon then as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Jesus saith unto them, Bring of the fish which ye have now caught. Simon Peter went up, and drew the net to land full of great fishes, an hundred and fifty-three. And for all there were so many, yet was not the net broken. Jesus saith unto them, Come and dine. And none of the disciples durst ask him, Who art thou, knowing that it was the Lord? Jesus then cometh and taketh bread, and giveth them, and fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus showed himself to his disciples, after that he was risen from the dead. Well, of course, we're in Eastertide at the moment, and Andrew, I remember Professor Hugh Horton in York once said that your work has always been about resurrection, by which he meant, I think, that you often locate things in the past and explore their relationship with the present, their continuities. Mm. And I suppose your latest novel, Silver, uh, is a very good example of this, where you literally resurrect the characters of Treasure Island. The ancient Greeks, of course, knew that uh, memory is the mother of the muses. And I just wondered if you could begin by telling us a little about your early life and about, as you look back, what the influences have been from that early part of your life, your father, your mother, your education. Sure. I think um, Hugh Horton was probably right about that, though it was a very interesting thing for me to hear him say, because like a lot of things that are true, it had been sitting there under my nose and I hadn't quite noticed it. Um, anyway, I, I grew up, as you've heard me say privately before, in a very unbookish family. My mother and father were country people who did country things. I was brought up in a village on the borders of the counties of Essex and Suffolk in East Anglia, in a village that my father's family had lived in by the time I came on the scene for three generations on and off, so they're all buried in the graveyard there. I mean, my ancestors were buried in the graveyard there. And as I say, they, they did country things. And in their case, at least, and I think this is, often is the case with such backgrounds, there was uh, very little interest or confidence about having anything to do with 
intellectual things um, and indeed artistic things. So we never went to galleries. I'm, I don't want to give the impression that I was somehow born in a ditch. It wasn't like that at all. But the fact, the reality is that we didn't go to look at pictures. Um, we had a few LPs, musicals mainly, South Pacific, that kind of thing, My Fair Lady. Um, but no sort of, as you might call it, proper music. Um, and they were not readers. My mum read a little bit. My father, who looked at me rather peculiarly towards the end of his life uh, one day and said that he reckoned he'd read half a book in his life, which was The Lonely Skier by Hamid Innes, that somebody must have told him was a thriller, but obviously not very thrilling for him, um, because he never got to the end of it. And I have several memories of him bringing it on holiday and reading it for as long as it was raining and then gratefully throwing it away when the sun came out and rushing off and doing the other things that he preferred to do. So I did the sorts of things that they themselves had done when I was a young child. And then, at the, in other words, country things. Um, being with animals, looking at animals, killing animals. My parents killed things in seasonal rotation, really. It's what they, they and their friends did. Um, seems rather odd looking back on it, but that's kind of more or less what they did. And then when I started doing my A-levels, which in those days were a sort of blessedly uninterrupted by AS's two-year romp, um, I fell under the spell of a wonderful English teacher, a man called Peter Way, who walked straight into my head and turned all the lights on and made me feel that poems in particular... In fact, poems much more than novels were not strange additions to life, but absolutely, I mean, in the best sense of the word, primitive things, things that belonged right in life and that were the products of things that were essential to us, shared experience as human beings, and moreover shaped by very primitive things, by breath, um, by natural pauses, by the natural shapes that a good poem uh, I now know takes. So this is all down to him. And I mean, some people here will know because you've written about it, but your, your father was a man who rather distrusted words. Yes. Maybe because they gave voice to some emotions. Yes, I think my father, I mean, my mother died young and I do struggle and struggle increasingly hard to, alas, to remember things about her. I put everything I could remember about her into my book about my childhood. But oddly, when I'd finished writing it, she, she went even further away, mm. as though I'd sort of expelled her somehow. She wasn't what I meant to do, but it seems to be what happened. My father's life was much longer, and he was, even by the standards of his period and background, very tight-lipped man. I spent quite a lot of my childhood thinking that these were silences and reticences that were to do with maybe not very interesting things having happened or just having that, a sort of classic case of the stiff upper lip. There's quite a lot to be said for the stiff upper lip, I think, actually, but especially if the alternative is Las Vegas, <laughs> as we're being persuaded by ads at the moment. Um, but he was very reticent and... Now that today is his death day, in fact, he died seven years ago today, and um, so he's very vividly in my mind today. And I think that a lot of his silences were to do with 
well, two things. One was not wanting to let the shadow of bad things that had happened to him fall into my life, which was very decent behavior by, on his part. And the other was exactly as you say, that it wasn't that he thought that words were useless. He thought they were so charged with feeling that to tangle with them at all might very easily lead him to become out of control. I think he knew better how much words weighed and how emotionally heated they were than he did how to control them. So his response to that was to not use them very much. And when I think about where my poems come from, I mean, sure, they did come from this wonderful English teacher and, and no doubt from other things in my life and other people that I've met. But I think, crucially, they are to do with him. I mean, he, he haunts me like nobody else does, even more now that he's dead, in fact. Um, and I think a lot of my poems, whether they're about him or not, are an attempt to try and understand the silences, the emotional silences that he existed in. I, I find it, and always have done, extraordinary that, that you had a father who literally severed off... He had his tongue severed and his tongue had to be stitched back. He did. You had a mother who had a riding accident and was in a coma for 10 years yeah. and couldn't say much That's in those right. 10 years. And then you find yourself... Can't stop me talking. Can't stop me talking. <laughs> but also a wordsmith, someone yes. for whom language suddenly becomes your pulse. Yes. And you had uh, a teacher, as we all do, I think, the lucky ones of us, that, that showed us what words can do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but just before we move into a bit of music, can you remember back then which poet first captured you and you thought, that's it? Absolutely, and I can remember the poem. Um, the very first lesson that I had with this man, Peter Way, we had an anthology called Theme and Variations, long out of print, which was a mishmash of contemporary and more historic writers, poets, um, and the first lesson that we had, he asked us to open at whatever page it was and look at a little poem by Thomas Hardy called I Look Into My Glass. Mm. Um, it has three verses only, 12, 12 lines long. And the glass that he refers to is, of course, a looking glass, a mirror, not a drinking glass. Um, and it goes like this. I look into my glass and view my wasting skin and think, would God it came to pass my heart had shrunk as thin. For then I, undistressed by hearts grown cold to me, could lonely wait my endless rest with equanimity. But time to make me grieve, part steals, lets part abide, and shakes this fragile frame at eve with throbbings of noontide. And I felt that poem go into me. Actually, I still feel it when I remember it now, go into me like a spear. And it made me feel that's very beautiful. And even though it's a poem by a 60-and-some-year-old man, which I was very much... I mean, I am now, but, but I was 16 at the time, I felt in some way that I identified with that gap that Hardy is writing about between the desires we have and the memories we have and our ability to act on them for one reason or another, bodily in the case of that poem. Mm. And it made me feel, I want to do that. 
Well, thank goodness it did. Um, we are going to hear some Britain, which you uh, you like Britain, and of course this is, this is the year to yeah. revisit Britain. We're going to hear one of the holy sonnets of John Donne, right. set to music by, by Britain. Is that a good combination for you, Britain and Donne? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's so beautiful, that, and really beautifully done. Thank you so much. Um, as I said, there was no sort of, as it were, serious music in my childhood, but when I, at about the same time as I was discovering poems, a friend of mine called Michael Richards, who's now the Cancer Czar, um, took me to, I think it must have been the, the ENO, to the Colosseum, rather dragged me, actually, because I thought I was going to have a very boring evening, to listen to Peter Grimes. And he said, no, no, you'll like this, because it's set in East Anglia, which is, of course, where I was brought up. And I, th I mean, in my recollection of that, which is, was one of the great evenings of my life, um, in my recollection, I start crying about sort of three bars in, and I don't stop until it's, well, until quite a long time after it's over, actually. I was absolutely transfixed. I mean, talk about spears going in. I mean, that, that was like that, too. They were a pretty big spear. Kind of caber. <laughs> mm. um, and I suppose, to try and be dignified about it, there are two things going on, really, when I listen to Britain, broadly speaking, for me. One is, um, well, I want to say a sentimental thing, except that I don't want to downplay it, um, which is to do with thinking, I know that landscape, which you evoke so well. And actually, quite a lot of the tones and chords that we hear in that um, poem that we've just listened to are very reminiscent of certain parts of Peter Grimes. Um, or one is of the other. I mean, you can see there's you know, <clears throat> similarities between them. Um, which, for, for me, I've just been imprinted with that as an idea that this is, in some sense, East Anglian music, and I see the landscape of my childhood, and in particular I see that coast, of course, where Britain was living and, and writing in for most of his life. Mm. And then there's the, which is more nearly to answer your question, the absolute brilliance that Britain has, um, almost unparalleled among English composers, certainly. I mean, Purcell is pretty good at this, too, I think, in setting of words. He's very, very hard to beat in that way. I mean, he's immaculately attentive to what the words are saying and gives them an extraordinary amount of room to move in, but allows us to dwell on them and in them. Paradoxically, by not actually doing very much to them, by giving them room to move, and the, the musical accompaniment of the poem that we've just heard is extremely spare, isn't it? In fact, you can hardly believe the setting has begun at the beginning. You think that the pianist is kind of warming up, and then you realize that you're already in it. That sort of astringency, that spareness, is very impressive, I think. Mm. All my writing life, I've thought that keep it simple is really the thing that I was trying to do, to make it simple. It's much harder than it seems. Well, that's very interesting, because you wrote a poem based on the reading that we heard now from I John's did. Gospel, called Simple. I did. Which I take it is a reference to how you tried to keep it simple because the language in that poem is... Is very simple. simple. Yeah, well, I hope the language in all my poems is simple. I mean, my idea when I'm writing really is to keep the language simple in a way that then allows you to look through the limpid surface of things into a more emotionally complicated mm. sort of undercroft, mm. <laughs> as it were, to a sort of crypt, an emotional crypt of the, of the well, thing. I want to talk a little bit about faith, but yeah. I wondered 
if we could hear Simple, sure. which is yes. based on the um, story from John's Gospel that we heard about the catching of the fish. Well, you will all have thought this a thousand times before, but, so I, I know I'm stating the blindingly obvious, really, but the thing that really attracts me almost as much as anything else, if not more than anything else, in that reading that we heard, and this is true of a lot of all the Gospels, actually, and you can see it's a sort of essential part of their success as scripture, success in the sense of how they communicate their meanings, is by combining extraordinary high-mindedness and the loftiest imaginable sort of thoughts with the absolutely humdrum and ordinary. Um, and the things which strike me particularly about that passage from, the, from St. John that we just heard is, well, the fire on the beach, which I take it is a kind of barbecue that they've set up before they uh, go fishing, or at least there it is when they come back from fishing, so that they can eat a bit of their catch before they go off to town and sell whatever they don't eat. Um, and most compellingly of all, the fact that they count the number of fish. Um, well, I know that gallons of ecclesiastical ink have been spilled in saying why it's the particular number of fish that John mentions, but, and there may be good theological reasons for that number, magic, magic number kind of reasons. But actually, this is a story about fishermen, and we know what fishermen do, which is that they count how many fish they catch. And I think it's rather surprising that he doesn't go on to say, and the biggest was eight and a half pounds, <laughs> which is kind of in the spirit of the way that the thing is written, it seems, mm. it seems to me. So I wanted to try and catch that, as well as the very beautiful uncertainty that they feel about who on earth this is that's standing on the shore. So this, here's this little poem. We came from the sea with our unusual catch, 153, a fire burned on the beach. We had expected nothing, now there was a glut, and also this man waiting. The charcoal was white hot, but was the man there? One moment it seemed so, the next he was not. Master, we said, don't go. Like thin air shimmering when powerful heat bakes it, he continued his waiting. Indefinite. Definite. The fire burned on the beach with our unusual catch. We had expected nothing. Now there was too much. So it's very simple. But it's about a very complicated thing. Is the man there or is he not? Yes. Let's come to that. Yes, quite. Tell me about faith in God. Well, um, it's the most interesting thing that I have to think about. Um, and the problem always I find, and perhaps everybody does, perhaps you do as well, is that the question, however nicely it's put, always implies that you've got a fixed answer to give. And I think that's almost never the case. I mean, I suppose a, a properly fundamental believer of whatever faith might say, this is what I think. But it's quite unusual in my experience of talking to people to, to meet people who can be so certain. 
Um, and I, it's almost by definition, by intention, my own feeling that I don't want to settle into that kind of, even supposing I could, settle into that kind of fixed response. There are things that I believe that don't change much. But the way in which I react to the big things that are to be thought about in relation to faith, we'll say perhaps in a second what they might be. I mean, they, they are pretty fluid for me. I don't mean that they disappear entirely, um, but they change their nature, um, depending on what's happening in the sort of short term of my life, and also depending on how I'm thinking about the longer term things, what I'm thinking about the other very big thing which we should all think about, which is what it's like to live in time. I mean, that, that especially. Um, I mean, to be completely honest with you, I think that I'm more... I'm more certain of the fascination, and I feel this very intensely, of the fascination that is to be had and enjoyed about thinking how our species goes to enormous lengths to design philosophical structures, to write pieces of music, to write poems, to build buildings, which allow us to think about the big things, why we're here, what matters, what's going to happen next, the really fundamental things. And I spend most of my time in church thinking about that. I'm certain that that is an interesting thing to think about. Um, do I solidly believe in the resurrection of the body? No. Um, do I believe in the Immaculate Conception? No. But do I think that these things are very interesting and important metaphors? Absolutely, I do. Mm. This may sound a bit wishy-washy to people, and I'm sorry if it does, but it suits me, and it allows me to have an idea of faith that's both supportive enough because it keeps drawing me back and keeps making me interrogate things um, and elastic enough for me to feel that I can respond to changes in myself and in the pressures that the world puts on me to go on living in a revisable present if I can put it like that I mean Tennyson's famous remarks about more faith living in honest doubt puts it very neatly and I suppose that more or less covers my case but it sounds a little bit pat now to me to put it like that. It's more wanting to... I want to make the, the, the faithing and the dieting feel more active than that. That's how they feel. It reminds me a little bit of something Graham Greene once said, which was, the trouble is I don't quite believe my unbelief. Yes, I think that's... A, I mean, Greene does have very interesting things to say about mm, this. Mm. Um, but, the, I mean, my wife and I, we go to church every week. Um, so and, of course, think and talk about it a lot outside those weekly events, which are big events in our weekly life. Um, and I hope she won't mind me saying we've both been reading the Bible. I mean, like a book. <laughs> it mm. is a book. Mm -hmm. um, so we've sort of been reading it from beginning to end. Um, some of it's very weird. I mean, as, as, you, as you know Tell better... Tell me about it. <laughs> you know better than I do. Lamentations. <laughs> yeah. um, yes. And, anyway, we mustn't go on, but, I mean, there are well, some very strange parts. We, we, we didn't ask you to... Well, we did ask you to read something from the Bible, but we also asked if, if we were going to have another reading slot, 
what would it be? And you answered, I'd like some Edward Thomas, who, of yes. course, you did a thesis, Hamlet thesis on Edward Thomas. I wrote Thomas. my thesis on Edward Thomas, yes. And you've brought a poem, Old Man. I, I have. Which you're going to read to us. Well, in my line of work, I, mean, I expect you have regular questions that kind of come round. And in my line of work, I quite often get asked which is my favourite poem, um, which is not quite the same as being asked what you think is the best poem that you've ever read, but this is my favourite poem. Edward Thomas is now all over the, everywhere like a rash, and I'm rather... Well, I'm pleased about that because he's a, a wonderful poet. Um, but when I was writing my thesis on him 40, 35 years ago, um, nobody had heard of him much. So I, there, there was always that pleasure for me of feeling that I was doing something rather sort of samizdat. Anyway, I'm reading this poem because I love it, but also because I thought that we might touch, which you already have done, on memory. And that was one of the first things that you were talking about. And this is a great poem about the operations of memory. For those of you who don't know it, what it describes is the narrator of the poem, whom we might as well call Edward Thomas, um, watching a child of his pull little bits off a herb, the herb called Old Man, that grows by the door into the cottage. Actually, it's still there, this, this very plant by the very door. And I've got a bit of it at home. So it's a poem about the circlings and recyclings of, of memory and naming. Old man or lad's love, in the name there's nothing to one that knows not lad's love or old man, the hall green feathery herb, almost a tree growing with rosemary and lavender. Even to one that knows it well, the names half decorate, half perplex the thing it is. At least what that is clings not to the names in spite of time. And yet I like the names. The herb itself I like not, but for certain I love it, as someday the child will love it who plucks a feather from the doorside bush whenever she goes in or out of the house. Often she waits there, snipping the tips and shriveling the shreds at last onto the path, perhaps thinking, perhaps of nothing, till she sniffs her fingers and runs off. The bush is still but half as tall as she, though it is as old, so well she clips it. Not a word she says, and I can only wonder how much hereafter she will remember with that bitter scent of garden rose and ancient dams and trees topping a hedge, a bent path to a door, a low, thick bush beside the door, and me forbidding her to pick. As for myself, where first I met the bitter scent is lost, I too often shrivel the grey shreds, sniff them, and think, and sniff again, and try once more to think what it is I am remembering, always in vain. I cannot like the scent, yet I would rather give up others more sweet, with no meaning, than this bitter one. I have mislaid the key. I sniff the spray, 
and think of nothing. I see and I hear nothing, yet seem too to be listening, lying in wait for what I should yet never can remember. No garden appears, no path, no whole green bush of lad's love or old man, no child beside, neither father nor mother nor any playmate, only an avenue, dark, nameless, without end. Just to go back to what you were saying, you go to church now, I remember. <laughs> um, can you say the creed? Is that something oh. that... I struggle to say the creed. I mean, the creed is very interesting in the, um, well, when you hear it, I mean, whichever service you happen to hear it in, isn't it? Because it's much more full on than almost anything else in the Anglican Church, anyway, that we're asked to say. There's no hiding place in the creed. Um, it doesn't have the same sort of metaphorical hidey, hidey holes that other prayers do. Um, it says, I believe, I believe, and it kind of goes, it's a catalogue of things that you sign up to. Mm. So, quite often I can't bring myself to say it, and on the days when I, on the Sundays when I do say it, I'm thinking very hard about what the metaphorical value of these things are, mm. and as we were saying earlier, about how they give us an opportunity to think about, well at this point I want to pull together the two things that I was saying really, matters of faith with matters of um, mortality of living in time I mean to be crass about it and I, don't, I hope I don't feel as bluntly about it as I'm about to sound as though I do I can see why oppressed particularly oppressed communities perhaps all communities but communities which are being dumped on by powerful neighbours um, in which harvests fail in which there's a very large number of poor people, um, in which the weather is bad, the land is not fertile, etc., etc., want to come up with a religion or with a, a, a set of faith beliefs that are to do with deferred gratification. I mean, any, any mug can see why you might do that. Um, and I suppose what I'm doing when I'm thinking about the creed is trying to find a way of seeing beyond that as it were, historicist reading of the creed into a, a, a realm in which what it asks us to sign up to might not be literally true, but nevertheless give us succor and inspiration, as I say, on the metaphorical level. I mean, these are very difficult things to talk mm. about. And if a hundred people are saying the creed, my guess is there are a hundred different creeds being said. I'm sure you... I mean, you must. As there were a hundred different ways of hearing that poem. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. The fact is we're saying it together. Yeah, and that matters very much. Mm. And we're generally saying it in a building, mm. surrounded by other words um, and pieces of music of mm. whatever kind. I mean you know, kind of thumping organ tunes for some people and more rarefied things for others, which all feed into the same thing. I find going to church sometimes an almost unbearably emotional event. 
and however grumpy and hungover and this isn't going to work or is this really what I want to do with my Sunday morning I feel on the way in I always come out feeling changed by it for those sorts of You've just reasons. described my Sunday morning <laughs> <laughs> it is, You've just mentioned music it's time for uh, music You mentioned that you like Schubert Yes, I'm very we're going to have two short songs uh, by Schubert Halt and Danksergung an der Bach so, Andrew, just a couple more minutes, I'm afraid, we've got. I could sit here all night, really, <laughs> enjoying this. Um, you did an enormous amount when you were laureate to uh, help people discover poets and poetry, particularly in the Poetry Archive. You're doing a lot at the moment to get children in our schools to recite and remember poetry. And... In many ways, poetry is probably being read by more people than ever at the moment, I suspect, in some ways. Well, no, popular. I think you're right. I mean, in fact, to be completely sort of pragmatic about it, um, the Internet has been a very good friend to poetry, as you know, and the Poetry Archive, which you kindly mentioned, which is, a, for those of you who don't know, is a, um, a holding of poems read by the poet's themselves. It has a kind of historic component, the mighty dead, we call it, um, as well as uh, contemporary poets, and a lot of editorial stuff are wrapped around them. So I think we now have something like 250 voices on the website, with a lot of editorial wrapped around them for children and teachers and general public to enjoy. Um, our figures keep shooting up, so we now have something like, well, over a quarter of a million people using it every month. Um, and every month they read about a million and a half pages of poetry. And it does allow you to say something rather amazing, which is that there probably are more poems therefore being read now than ever before in the history of the human race. Mm. I mean, they don't buy books much, but I'm not very worried about that. They've never bought many poetry books. But I think what it proves to me is something that we touched on earlier, which is that which is this, that we, we might happen to grow up to speak quite a complicated language about poetry as critics or as people studying it at school and university or whatever. But it is a primitive thing. Mm. It's a very primitive thing in the best sense. It's essential. And to think otherwise is badly learnt behaviour. Bad teaching, bad advice, bad take on the poem. Um, and it occurred to me recently, I probably said this within your hearing before, that there's a nice way to illustrate this which might allow people to leave with a smile on their faces, which is that I think, in the West anyway, the first sound that anybody hears is a two-word poem, and it's goo-goo. It's a perfect rhyme. And what that allows us to think about, I mean, it sounds flippant, but what it allows us to think about is that, again, as a species, we realise that noise breath and noise, as that beautiful song has just reminded us actually in slightly different terms, but it's really the same point, has its own meaning. It's nonsense, strictly speaking, goo-goo, but it speaks to the, the appetite that we as a species have for like sounds, for rhymes, for rhythm, and then as we grow up and our brains develop, for more complicated things that come with that. But if we ever forget that absolutely primitive, essential, basic foundation, then something has gone wrong. Now, I happen to know that um, Andrew at the moment has been writing some poems based around minor characters who crop yes. up in the Gospels. 
and uh, they haven't been published and they haven't been read. So you are just about, if I can convince him to read one of them for you now, to have a world premiere of one of his poems based around uh, a character that is lurking in the Gospels and sometimes gets overlooked. Yes, well, that's very nice of you. Um, This person is not so much overlooked, except he's not named. I mean, you're completely right. Generally, they are... Oh, it's the man who tidies up after the Last Supper. Um, That's the kind of character who interests me. Anna in the Simeon story in the temple. Um, And this is somebody like... Lazarus, who of course is well known, as it were, but he's not named. So it's somebody who's been raised from the dead. Which might be a bit of a mixed blessing, I was thinking, in certain <laughs> situations. <laughs> and it comes about halfway through this series. I slipped over the border. I fell down into the pure dark with no dreaming but when I came home again when I rose to the light I found there had been a dream a dream which keeps insisting its story is not done yet there is more sadness to come and more confusion there are crowds of us like this a troop anyway Blurred at the edges, out of focus, shrunk in our bodies and reduced in height. So it might appear we stand no taller than wheat when we brush through the harvest. I would like to imagine we left swirling trails of light. But so far as I know, there is nothing so simple Nothing to show we are living backwards, unlike the multitude. They know who we are, however, and prize us highly. We are evidence. We are proof of virtue. And to speak for myself, I am delighted, very delighted to be alive, despite feeling exhausted as never before, by the terms of my existence, in which every single thing I see requires me to raise my voice and prove that I am happy. Thank you. And our final piece of music is Trauma Rai from uh, Schumann's work. Andrew, one of the things that I've always wanted to say, but I've never said it, but now, I know why not? I'm under the dome of St. Paul's Cathedral, is one of the things that I've always admired and loved about being in your company is that you are a person of great passions, uh, but what you do with those passions is you distill them. Uh, Andrew Motion is a man of passion distilled. It's always reflected on and perceptive uh, passion. And we all benefit from that. And uh, I think we've all benefited from that this evening. On behalf of everybody here, I want to thank Andrew and Richard, our musicians, but I also want to thank you very much for your time and for all that you've said and brought to us here tonight. Well, can I thank you? I mean, you've 
done more than anybody to set me on this road, and you do more than anybody to keep me travelling along it. So I'm delighted to say these things under the dome of the cathedral. So it's been a complete delight, and thank you very much for coming. Thank you.